Well, today we begin a series on the books of Haggai and Malachi, and if I were to ask you to turn to Haggai, my guess is that you might need to first look at the table of contents in the front of your Bible to do it if you haven't already done it after the church email that went out. These books are not very well known, and that's one of the reasons why I want us to cover them, because all of God's Word is profitable to us. There is not one verse from Genesis to Revelation that isn't of value to our souls. But another reason I want us to cover them is because actually our situation as God's people in the world today has many similarities to the situation of God's people in Haggai and Malachi. And so, really, these books offer us amazing insights into how it is that we should live as the people of God in the 21st century, right now, in fact. And so today, I want to give you an overview, I want to orient you, and I want to give you a foretaste of what's to come. So here's the overall thrust of the books, and here's what they're about and what we should be about. It's this. Fear the Lord and build his house, for the day of his appearing is at hand. Fear the Lord and build his house, for the day of his appearing is at hand. So let's just jump in. And let's begin with context. I'd encourage you to open up the outline that's there in your bulletin. That'll kind of help you follow along. Today is going to be a a survey of these books at, at high altitude. First of all, when were they written? Haggai was written in 520 BC. Malachi, about 60 to 70 years later. So both before Jesus Christ was born. Malachi is actually the last book in the Old Testament, in fact. After Malachi, there's 400 years, and then Jesus is born. These books are written to the nation of Israel, and Israel's situation at this point is important to understand. This is a period called the post-exilic period. Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah are all post-exilic Prophets, and what that means is that they ministered to Israel after the exile ended. Now, you may not know what the exile is, so let's just back up a second. The first six of the books, the first six books of the Bible tell us about how God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's Exodus. He he entered into covenant with her at Sinai. He, He brought her to himself in the promised land. Wonderful stuff. And as you keep reading, what you see is that eventually he blessed her with David as her king. The temple was constructed under David's son Solomon. It was one of the wonders of the world and the presence of God dwelled among his people. Amazing stuff. But what you also see as you read the first six books of the Bible is that this covenant God entered into with Israel calls for faithfulness on her part. This is a marriage and God is a lover. 
And he set his love upon this people. And of course, it's only right and appropriate for her to love him in response. And what that looks like is being devoted to him alone. Israel must keep herself pure and not give herself to idolatry and unbelief and the wickedness of the nations around her. If she does, judgment will come. If she's not faithful, then God says, I will use unbelieving nations to come in to conquer you and remove you from the land now. As you read the rest of the Old Testament, that's actually exactly what happened. Israel was an unfaithful bride. And not just kinda, spiritually speaking, she was a serial adulteress. And so in 722... God uses the Assyrians to come in, conquer the northern ten tribes, spread them hither and thither throughout the Assyrian Empire, and then in 589, he uses the Babylonians to come in and conquer the southern two tribes, which includes Jerusalem, the temple, which symbolizes the presence of God with his people. That is destroyed down to its foundations. The people of God are carted off to Babylon Israel is done. However, what you also see as you read through the Old Testament are promises of restoration. God will use another ruler to bring Israel back. Israel will return to the land. The temple will be reconstructed. The glory of God will come. And that brings us to these books. In 539, there was a great victory parade in Babylon because Cyrus, king of Persia, had entered into the city and just conquered it unopposed. Now, Cyrus and the Persians, they had a really shrewd foreign policy. To keep their subjects happy under their rule, they would let conquered peoples return to their lands and and even worship their deities as they saw fit. Well, guess what? Israel was one of those conquered peoples in Babylon, and in 538, Cyrus issued a decree authorizing the Israelites to return. We actually know what he said. Listen to Ezra 1. I'm just going to read it for you. Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here it is. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Friends, this is actually amazing. Israel 
is going back. The temple is authorized to be rebuilt. The exile is over. And so what happens? Well, Israel goes back. But not a ton of people go. Actually, it's just a remnant. In, in 536, they start work on the temple, but the work stalls out. There's challenges and opposition. And then years pass. Five years. Ten years. Sixteen years. Sixteen years after they started the temple and eighteen years after they'd returned, this is where Haggai comes on the scene. And so what's Haggai about? What are the themes you see as you read through it? Open up your Bibles to Haggai. Page 791, if you're using the blue Bibles. If you open up to Matthew, you could just go back three books and you're there. What do we see in Haggai? You have the temple still lying in ruins. Pick up in one one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. By the way, this is how we know it's 520. Those dates are easily checkable. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So... Zerubbabel, he's the governor of the Israelite remnant, and Joshua, he's the priest, and if you read in Ezra, you'll, you'll see these guys, and Haggai prophesies to them, and what does he say? Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, Israel, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the house of the Lord is still in ruins. They started work on the house 16 years ago, but they stopped. This is actually the main issue that you see in Haggai. The temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, hasn't been built. Nobody's worked on it. Well, if they haven't been working on it, what have they been doing? This gets us to the second issue in Haggai, the condition of God's people. They're distracted. They're busy about their own business and not the Lord's. Pick up in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What's the picture here? I call it fruitless prosperity. Work without satisfaction. It's like they make great progress in life. They put money Lots of money in the savings account, but then the bank goes belly up and it's all gone. Nothing gained. Everything lost. Why? 
because they're busy about their own business, not the Lord's. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Oh my goodness, church, I want to steal Brad's sermon for next week and preach it right now, but I'm not going to. I'm going to exercise self-control. And so what does God want? He wants them to focus on his house instead of their houses. But why? What's the big deal? Well, because it's an expression of putting him first. They're not putting him first. This is honestly covenant unfaithfulness. Now, they're not giving themselves to gross idolatry like they were before the exile, but they aren't giving themselves first to him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says. You get the feel here that there's more needed than just a return from exile, right? Well, that's true. There is more that's needed, and that's why you see God promising a messianic hope in Haggai. So turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Holy smokes. Not only is the temple going to be rebuilt, he's going to fill it with glory. This is fantastic. And what's more, he promises another Davidic king to rule God's people. Turn to verse 20 of chapter 2. Verse 20 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th month, on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. This is a promise that there is soon to be an overthrow of the kingdoms of the world and a Davidic king is going to rule over the world. And this too is incredible. 
So what happens? Well, the people of God respond to Haggai's message. They repent. They fear the Lord. They get busy about his work. There's actually a little revival in Israel. It's, it's wonderful. And the temple was finished in 515. What a great thing. And if you're an Israelite at this point, I guarantee you at 515, the word on the street is, man, the glory of God is coming. The temple is constructed. We are ready for his glory to fill it. We are ready for the Davidic heir to come. Get ready, everybody. I mean, they're just kind of going like this. I mean, they were excited. I'm excited. Well, expectation minus reality equals frustration, right? And that's what you see as you fast forward 60 to 70 years to Malachi. Fast forward 60 to 70 years to Malachi, the temple's built, but it's not filled with glory. In fact, it's defiled. The people are worshiping, but their worship is impure, half-hearted, subpar. The animals they bring for sacrifice are second best. No, not even second best. God commands spotless animals, but they bring the sick and the lame and the blind. They withhold the tithe. God commands a tenth of all to be given to him. They're not giving it. What's more, they're beginning to divorce their wives and marry foreign women who serve other gods. Hello, that's one of the reasons that led them to the exile. Why is this happening? Because God's people are cynical, skeptical, and complacent. God tells them in chapter 1, You've got to offer pure sacrifices. They say in verse 13, what a weariness it is to serve the Lord. It says that when they hear the command of the Lord, they snort. That's crazy. They are also saying crazy things like, it's vain to serve the Lord, 314. In other words, it doesn't accomplish anything. I've tried it. Evil goes unpunished and righteousness goes unrewarded. Guess it doesn't matter much. Look at the world. Chapter 1 even opens up with them saying, you don't even love us, Lord. The God that brought them out of Egypt and then brought them out of Babylon, you, you don't love us, Lord? What? This is tantamount to a spoiled child who throws a temper tantrum with his parents when he doesn't get what he wants. But unfortunately, Israel is not a child. She's full grown. And here's what she's saying. Do you know what we're seeing in Malachi? You can take the people out of Babylon, but you can't take Babylon out of the people's hearts. The hearts of the people are unfaithful. And so God calls his people to repentance and covenant faithfulness again. 3.7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 4.4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Repent, fear me, be faithful to the covenant. That's God's message to his people. 
And then just like Haggai, God promises a messianic hope. 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see what this is? It's a promise that the Lord will come to his temple and he will purify his people. The temple has been built now, but it's not filled with glory. The people are worshiping now, but their worship is defiled. But the Lord will come. He will come to his temple and he will purify his people. It's a promise. And that's how your Old Testament ends. In anticipation. In expectation. Fulfillment is yet to come. And God's people, they're not right. So how is it fulfilled? How is Malachi and Haggai fulfilled? They're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. First of all, let me just kind of give you a softball. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Mark quotes from Isaiah and Malachi 3 to tell us that John the Baptist is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. And how does he prepare the way? Well, he prepares the way by proclaiming the same message of Haggai and Malachi. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance John says, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Repent. Because the Lord is coming to his temple. And his coming to his temple will result in both salvation and judgment. And don't think because you're Abraham's descendants that you're okay. God can raise up children for Abraham from stones. This is a not so subtle hint that the nations are about to be included in God's people. 
And so what happens? Well, we celebrate Christmas. We know what happens. The Lord comes. He comes in the person of Jesus. And do you know what one of the first things he does is? He comes to his temple. Luke 2, just listen. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous man and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, he took him up into his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Israel. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God that Haggai and Malachi promised would come has come to the temple in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He has come, the glory has come to the temple. And what has Jesus come to do? He's come to purify his people. Malachi 3 says he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, Malachi leaves us with with the people of God impure and undefiled. Even though people have left Babylon, Babylon's still in their hearts. And it's an age-old problem, by the way, when they left Egypt, Egypt was still in their hearts. Their hearts were never true to the covenant. Their hearts were never right before the Lord. And that's why their worship was impure. But the Lord promises to purify them, and that's what Jesus does. He came to be a pure worshiper. To give his life on the cross for impure worshipers. And to all who turn from their sin and trust in him, he makes them pure worshipers. This is what he came to do. He came, Ephesians 5 tells us, to give himself up for the church, for the people of God, Jew and Gentile. To cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. That, she might, that he might present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus does by his cross. He creates for himself a, a pure people who now, in the words of Malachi 3, guess what we can do? We can bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Our worship is not defiled. It's pure. And what are our offerings? Our entire lives. Through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, 
Hebrews 13, 15. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. Non-Christian, if you're here listening to me this morning, I want you to know that the only way you can be acceptable to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. If Israel of old teaches the world anything, it is that by the works of the law, no man can be saved. If you want to be acceptable to God and to not be like chaff, which will be blown away in a coming day, the only way to be able to offer yourself to God as a pure and acceptable sacrifice is to come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. He lived and kept the covenant and took the curse of the covenant upon himself and rose again and he offers all who trust in him forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And that can be you. I hope you're beginning to see how, how Haggai and Malachi are fulfilled in Christ. He, he is also the Davidic king who came to rule over his people. So Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you remember that promise to Zerubbabel at the end of Haggai 2 that points us to a, to a greater David, David's son, David's Lord, Jesus Christ. He was born in his line. He rose from the grave. He rules at God's right hand over his precious people, even right now. But I want you to see something else. I want you to see that in Jesus, this whole theme of temple escalates and expands. Haggai and Malachi are all about the temple. In Haggai, it's in ruins. In Malachi, it's defiled. And yet God promises that the glory of his temple will far outshine the glory of all others. How is that fulfilled in Christ? Because I don't see that yet. Well, just buckle up, okay? Because this is going to get good. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the temple. He took his disciples to look at the temple in John 2, and he said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, they're bewildered because it took 46 years to build this temple. And by the way, this temple was not the temple that was rebuilt after Haggai. It's a better temple. But Jesus was talking not about this physical temple. He's talking about himself. I'm the temple, he says. And if you think about that, it makes perfect sense. Because what does the temple represent? The presence of God with his people. And Jesus is the presence of God with his people. 
John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. With the coming of Jesus, the physical temple is done away. When he died, the curtain inside the temple, which separated the most holy place from the holy place, was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that there is no more barrier between God and man because God dwells with his people through Jesus. Thank you, Reuben. But there's more. Jesus is constructing a new temple. And it's us. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 literally says, we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you yourselves are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Likewise, First Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Brothers and sisters, the church is the temple of God. The church is the dwelling place of God where his glory is shining for all to see. But there's more. This temple may not look very impressive right now. The church in the world right now is not the church victorious. It's the church on mission. But just wait. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. Tiny, seemingly insignificant. But it will grow to be unbelievably huge. Revelation 21 Pictures the new heavens and the new earth in their entirety as the temple of the Lord. And I saw no temple in the city, John says. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does anything detestable or false, but only the those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai and Malachi through Jesus Christ. The whole world becomes the temple and His glory shines out from it. And we're a part of that. And so let's just come down off this mountaintop. Let's take a seat under the shade of a tree. Let's think about how these things apply to us. As we study Haggai and Malachi, what can we expect as takeaways? Well, first of all, a lot like the people of Israel... In that day, we're between the times. 
Hence the title of this series, Living Between Two Worlds. Do you see the similarities between God's people then and God's people now? They're out of Babylon. There's partial fulfillment of God's promises, but they're still waiting for the fullness. Well, so are we. In God's plan of redemption, we're in this new chapter. It's a huge step forward because in the language of Colossians 1, we've been delivered out of the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But still, the fullness of the promises are still not yet, right? Theologians rightly call the time we live in right now as the already and not yet of the kingdom. We're between the times. And in this in-between times, we are susceptible to the same sins. Like the people of God in Haggai, we can be busy about our own business instead of the Lord's. We can give our energy and time to all sorts of things, to our work, to our hobbies, to our homes, to making sure that our kids have all the experiences All the while, we can neglect God's house, God's church. We can give him our second best. We can can give him what we have left. We We can invest ourselves in his business if we have time and energy after we've invested ourselves in a lot of other ventures. And like the people of God in Malachi, we can become cynical, skeptical, and complacent. Let me ask you a question. Are you hopeful and expectant? Are you hopeful and expectant? When you think about your life, are you expectant and hopeful for your future? That it will look like growth in grace. That it will look more and more like the character of Christ. That the joy of the Lord will be your strength. When you think about your relationships, are you hopeful and expectant? That your marriage will be characterized by sweetness instead of bitterness. That sins between you and brothers and sisters will be forgiven and grace will abound. When you think about your life, are you expectant and hopeful that it will be characterized by fruitful labor for Jesus Christ, that the Lord will bless the seed of the gospel as you sow it in your family and friends and workplace? When you think about the church, are you hopeful and expectant for God to speak to you on Sunday morning, this Sunday morning, to encourage you on this Sunday morning, to build you up this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning? And do you expect sinners to be saved? And do you expect him to build his church? And do you expect to play a part in it? What's your posture? Are you hopeful, engaged, laboring? It may be that the Christian life has not turned out like you thought it would. Maybe your marriage is in a bad place. Maybe you've been wronged by another Christian and deeply wounded. Maybe you've seen division and disunity in the church. Maybe you've sown seed, but you haven't seen the gospel sprout. Maybe life's just beaten up on you. 
Maybe you're tempted to say like they said in Malachi 1-2, does the Lord even love me? Maybe you're tempted to say like they did in Malachi 3.14, it's vain to serve the Lord. It doesn't work. I tried it. And so what you do is you disengage. You take your hands off the wheel. You take your foot off the gas. And you stop fighting the good fight with vigor. And you wonder what's wrong. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be more unbecoming of a Christian than to become cynical, skeptical, and complacent. His love for you is not determined by how easy or how hard things are. His love for you is determined by giving Jesus on the cross. And remember, Jesus himself said that following him is not going to be easy, but the future will be bright. And so what do you need to do? Fear the Lord and get to work. Brothers and sisters, we need to fear the Lord. Not fear like a dog at the hands of an abusive master. Not servile fear, but fatherly fear. Our God is an awesome God of heaven and earth. He sent his son to redeem a people who are zealous for good works. Oh, pity us if we are not zealous for good works. Pity us if we are about our own business instead of his business. Pity us if we are saying the gospel doesn't work because it hasn't worked in our lives, but what we're not doing is repenting. Up, brothers and sisters. Up. Up from your slumber. Up from your laziness. Up from your distractedness. Up from investing in lesser things and just coming to church. Up and labor for his sake. The fullness of God's kingdom's blessing is just around the corner. Let us labor for our master while it is still today. We will never, ever regret doing so in the age to come. Fear the Lord and build his house for the day of his appearing is at hand. That's Haggai and Malachi. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us grace to not take our foot off the gas, to not doubt your love, to not say so foolishly, it's vain to serve the Lord. Oh, Father, may we take logs out of our eyes. May we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and may we run with endurance the race that is set before us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, in anticipation of the glory to come. Amen.